Today's Day Chang Show is brought to you by TransferWise. Do you ever send money abroad? When you do, you should use TransferWise. Don't use a bank or PayPal. That's like going to McDonald's for a salad. They have it, but other people do it way better. Instead, use TransferWise. TransferWise always has a great exchange rate and a super low fee, which is probably why they already have 4 million customers. And their borderless account lets you hold over 40 currencies at once and convert them whenever you like. Test it out today for free at TransferWise.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. That's TransferWise.com slash Chang, or download the app today. And now, The Day Chang Show. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango for the intro music. They are on their 2018 Hanukkah run at the Bowery Ballroom, so check their shows out or just check out their music, buy their albums. I am recording this intro in New York as I'm on the road. I'm here in New York for a day, head to a lot of different places because of filming for Ugly Delicious, so apologies for the poor sound quality as I'm my own sound engineer right now. But this week's guest is the great chef Jeremy Fox of Rustic Canyon in Los Angeles and Toluas in Santa Monica, formerly of Ubuntu, one of my close friends and one of the great chefs in America. Jeremy's gone through a lot and I didn't expect to get as emotional when we did this podcast. There's a lot of difficult subjects, some of the things that we are still having a hard time talking about. But one of the things I know is we both agreed that by sharing some of our struggles. And if you are like, man, I wish these guys were more articulate about it. I wish these guys could be more open about it. It's not easy to talk about because we're still unpacking. We're still trying to understand what the fuck happened. And of course we want to share and we want others to benefit from it. But particularly from Jeremy's point of view, some of the stuff he went through, I can't imagine being easy to talk about. So he should have the freedom to talk about it as he chooses. But I do believe that what he went through was not easy. And it makes me so proud to see that it was just the beginning of his story and where Jeremy is at now. It's a testament to his grit, his perseverance, and just what an extraordinarily talented chef that he is at. So I'm going to actually read to you a foreword that I wrote for his cookbook that came out recently on vegetables. I could do a rambling intro, but it might be better because everything I want to say is in this foreword. And uh, again, I'm honored that he was on this podcast and hope you enjoy. It is not an understatement to say that Jeremy Fox makes the best tasting vegetables on the planet. Though not a vegetarian, he happens to be naturally gifted with handling produce and his passion for seed to stock, nose to tail, vegetable cooking is undoubted. I've eaten great vegetable dishes all over the world, but no one has changed my views about produce more than Jeremy has. And I'd also add his ideas on cooking, his philosophy on cooking has really influenced myself and other cooks for sure. Just one of the best chefs around. The first meal of his I had was at Buntu, the vegetarian restaurant in Napa, California, where he was cooking vegetable dishes like I'd never seen. His peas, white chocolate, and macadamia exemplify how delicious the dish can be when suspended in the right time and place. The meal cemented in my mind an opinion I still hold today. Jeremy Fox is one of the greatest chefs America's ever produced. 
At Ubuntu, groundbreaking food came at professional and personal cost. His well-deserved success took him away from the kitchen and spiraled him into something more darker. I could relate to the burden he endured during those years, but I never envied them. Chefs get into cooking for a multitude of reasons. Somewhere on that list, usually high at the top, we do it so we can immerse ourselves in the kitchen. We put what's on the plate before anything else and choose to put life on hold. The irony, though, is that as a chef rises to fame, he or she is often effectively pulled away from what they do the most, cook. Jeremy tells that story in this book, but he also tells his inspiring story moving past that. He has come out on top at Rusty Canyon, wiser, more self-assured, and ultimately happier with the food that he's cooking. These days, he isn't cooking at the expense of his own life. He's cooking is vital and supports life. Rusty Canyon is among the best expressions of refined, local, market-driven cooking that exists today. Jeremy's beautiful dishes are, at the end of the day, just delicious food that you want to eat. His menu showcases the best that California has to offer and is a beautiful expression of the dialogue Jeremy has with farmers and produce he works with every day. Yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. So again, apologies if it sounds like we could have done a better job. It's not easy to talk about, but um, I'll shut up now. And here's my podcast with Jeremy Fox. Welcome to the show, Chef Jeremy Fox, good friend of mine, one of, I have always maintained this, one of America's great chefs we've ever produced. He may not be a household name on the East Coast, even though he was born and raised in Ohio, spent a lot of his earlier life in Atlanta. He's been on the West Coast now for most of his early formative years and most of his adult life now. And I've gotten to know Jeremy pretty well over the years. Uh, how many years now? What, over 10? Over 10 now. Well, well yeah. over 10, right? Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of mutual friends. And the first I heard about Jeremy's name was when he was running the kitchen at Manresa, David Kinch's restaurant in Los Gatos. And I think that's when a lot of people heard his name. And he then opened up Ubuntu in Napa Valley, which was arguably, I put in the context, if you're going to food dork it out, if 71 Clinton Fresh Food by Wiley Dufresne was a seminal moment in food in New York City, Ubuntu was equally or maybe more important to food on the West Coast and had a real significant impact on chefs globally, whether people realize it or not. And something we've spoken about, something that Jeremy has shared with Lucky Peach, the magazine with Rachel Kong, and it was one of them, probably the piece that I was simultaneously most happy to have because Jeremy was so bold and brave to share his struggles and career and trajectory and very open and raw and sad because it was the story of my friend and I could understand a lot of the struggles because I think I was there for some of it. And along the way, keeping tabs I was incredibly happy that he wound up on the other side in Los Angeles, winding up at Rustic Canyon. And it is one of the great restaurants in California with a sort of new found vigor approach to cooking in a way that I think is really inspirational and found his way both professionally and personally married with a beautiful daughter and 
How many restaurants now other than? Two. 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 What are the names? Russet Canyon and Tallulah's. And that's how I'll start this. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Thanks, Dave. This is weird, right? Yeah. 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 You're all grown up. You're all grown up. I mean, yeah, it's been a while. <laughs> um, where to begin? Your cookbook came out, which the title is? On Vegetables. On Vegetables, which I told you, you shouldn't come out with that book because everyone's going to steal all your hard-earned secrets because you have a way of cooking and thinking about food that is incredibly original. And I, I'm going to probably sound like I'm blowing smoke up this man's ass for the duration of the podcast, but it's all true because in this industry, I think it's incredibly difficult to find an original voice and a way of thinking about food and cooking food that is done in a way that is very personable and delicious and inventive. And that's something that you wind up doing at Rustic Canyon and you wrote about it in the book, but I think it, what you were wanting to do, because it's not about like, um, how should I say, how do you want to talk about Ubuntu? What would you say the food was at Ubuntu besides being all vegetarian? I don't even know. Right? Like, like because there was that's, no template for that. At yeah. The time. That's why I'm having still a hard time because in your career arc, right? Like it's not to say that what you're doing isn't ambitious. And you sort of talk about it in the article in like peach. It is food that you're more comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. But it's something I feel like I'm trying to be more open to talk about too, is there's a point that ambition and narcissism and talent and naivete and all of this shit sort of winds up oftentimes in a cook's career and some amazing epic shit can come out of that. But simultaneously, some fucking awful shit can come out of it as well. Sure. That's what was for me at Ubuntu. Like, I don't know how to describe the food. Yes, it was vegetables. <laughs> but in a way that's never been done before. And how do you talk about that now? Like, I have such a hard time explaining it to a younger cook that asks, hey, chef, why is Jeremy Fox important? I mean, honestly, I, I look back on it and that food, I don't think I was cooking for myself. It wasn't necessarily the food that I wanted to eat. It wasn't how I ate. I think I was specifically trying to impress people and trying to be the best at something. And I think that was the driving force behind that. And I think just an obsession with vegetables and and what to do with it, that that was really the only thing I cared about was, what am I going to make now? What am I going to do with this? Let's back up before we get there. And then that might help out. Did you want to become a cook? No. Were your parents in the food? Like No, no. I had always thought I would maybe be a lawyer. I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. And I think eventually I thought that for some reason, I did want to have restaurants, but not as a chef. So I think that's why I went to culinary school because I, I saw kind of at this restaurant where I worked, how the kitchen kind of treated the, the manager who didn't know how to do anything in the kitchen, you know, get me a bucket of steam, things like that. What was the name of that restaurant again? It was called Roaster's Rotisserie. That's right. In Atlanta. So I just wanted to at least be competent about what was going on in the kitchen so that's why I went to culinary school and a combination of really enjoying being in the kitchen or at least the challenge of it and the not wanting to go to two more years of school for the management degree. I think that kind of drove me towards staying in the kitchen. And like no one tried to dissuade you from working in a kitchen. No, not really. No, no. My parents were pretty cool about it. I think they more saw me doing something like working on cruises or a country club or something like that, not, you know, struggling as a independent 
freestanding chef restaurant thing. Was it something you were like, I'm really good at this? No. I always thought I was the worst. So I think that's why I would just get obsessed with how I worked. And, you know, if I had on my station, you know, like a prosciutto that had to be sliced to order, I kept my gloves in the reach in. So there would be less body heat to start melting the fat on the prosciutto. So, you know, things like that. You know, when I did pasta, um, when I was on that station, I shaved my arms. So I, w- you know, I would have these long sheets of pasta and I, and I, I wouldn't get hair in the, in the pasta. It was just definitely a warrior kind of attitude back then. Or would you say you just learned to care about it? Sure. But, you know, how much should you care? Like how much is normal? Well, that's the question, right? And I feel like that's the question we've had a lot. I think the underlying theme of a lot of the more serious conversations we've had over the years is how much should you care about food? Sure. Right? And like you say it's warrior. I could also see it that way as someone that just like grinding it out and it's a war of attrition as to who's going to be at the top of the mountain, right? At the end of it all. And I never thought anything would come of it. I never expected like that I would be anything other than the chef at maybe, you know, a regional corporate chef for Cheesecake Factory or something like Which that. Which would be sort of Oh, I, I would be I would be making some serious, serious coin. coin. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? That's funny. You say that now and you're like, actually, that would be completely like awesome, sort of. Oh, yeah. You know, I think when I was in culinary school, I used to be like, oh, I'm not going to work in a hotel. I look at some of those jobs and, you know, you look at the, the buffet lines at the Bellagio and like, that is some organization. To be able to do that much food, like that's just a whole nother skill set. As you've gotten older, you've appreciated the other kinds of jobs in the culinary arts that you originally thought were sort of lowbrow. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think being a buffet chef in a casino has got to be one of the hardest jobs. And I wish I had that sort of experience. Like, I feel like it would make my job a little easier if I had already done this kind of large volume thing, but I, I've never have. So when did you leave Atlanta? And what? how many restaurants did you work in when you were in Atlanta? I worked in one restaurant. Uh, I worked in uh, Mumbo Jumbo. That was the one. That was the name that I can yeah. never forget. Mumbo Jumbo. That was a cool restaurant. Gunter Seeger was the consulting chef when it opened. And who's Gunter Seeger? Because I might stop you a bunch because we can talk inside baseball all the right. time, but I think it's important where people understand why people are significant when we talk about them without me being a total pain in the ass. But who was Gunter Seeger? He's a great example of someone like that. Gunter Seeger, when I was starting to cook in the late 90s, Gunter Seeger was the, I don't know, as far as I thought, the best chef in the country. Maybe it was because I was from Atlanta and he opened up Seegers in Atlanta. So that was what I saw the most, but it always seemed like he was in the same group as Daniel Balud and Eric Repair. And he just decided not to go that way. And Gunter Seeger was from Alsace as well, right? I believe so. And Daniel Balud, Eric Repair, French masters in New York. People that have gravitas because they were in New York and Gunter wound up in Atlanta. And you're right. I think about that all the time. If Gunter, who is now has Gunter Seegers in New York, very intimate, delicious tasting menu restaurant, and he's opened that in the later part of his career, if he opened up in New York 30 years ago, I think you, when you talk about New York Titans, Danielle Blue, Eric Repair, Jean George, Gunter Seeger would be right there. Yeah, for sure. And he happened to be in Atlanta. And then he, after Seegers closed, I think maybe in, Early 2000s. He moved to New York. But he didn't have even have a restaurant, I no. don't think. As far as I know, he didn't cook 
publicly in a restaurant until he opened up Seekers a couple years ago. And he's at the green market. He's working. He's still working like a dog, man. Like he is shopping for every vegetable, fabricating everything. He's a real cook's cook and mad respect. So you have one of the best chefs you could possibly have in Atlanta consulting at a place called Mama Jumbo's. What was the food? What were you making? It was global American. And this was 1999 when I started there. And I was, you know, I started out there right out of culinary school. Culinary school, two years, one year? Two years. I didn't quite finish. And uh, yeah, global American. It was really a pretty eclectic place. And how long you were there? I served two and a half years. Did you work all the station? I did. I left as chef de cuisine and uh, moved to San Francisco at that point. And you had mentioned the stories and, and it's something that I can relate to. And I think a lot of cooks that are, no oh shit, how many cooks are in their forties now? A lot, but like our age group, because mm-hmm. we're older men now. <laughs> 40 is the new, uh, the new 50. <laughs> yeah. How do you tell people today where people care more about food? Like it was hard, hard to cook, not just making the food and learning how to do it. Like, when you went to cooking school and you're learning all this, no one's telling you how to like solve problems in a diplomatic fashion. No, and and you definitely did not see that in action when when you left school and went to work. You know, it was the Marco Piero White era, or like sure. what was glorified was a kind of cooking that was reminiscent of being in the army. Yeah, but you know, there was definitely a part of me that really liked that and and fed off of it. Me too. But you are not someone that like, I love strict organization. Neither am I. No, I'm, <laughs> you know, outside of work, I'm super mellow. I'm quiet. I, I'm a dad, kind of a homebody. But when I go in the kitchen, I, I have to be a different person, I, I think. It's less now than it used to be. And what was it used to be? Like for me, growing up in a Korean, very, very strict household, everything sort of governed by rules and even high school that I hated. It was about discipline. It was about getting yelled at. And I was a stress ball. I was anxiety ridden, all of these things. And earlier on, I didn't realize I had like issues. And the weirdest thing was I was relatively lazy and rudderless in just about anything. And ironically, until I found that like a real kitchen, I worked in a kitchen, but like there's a difference between working in a kitchen and then a real kitchen that is trying to do like whole cuisine or something fancy and that rigor and that discipline and that structure and that sort of militant insistent that things are a certain way and a lot of yelling. I wouldn't say verbal abuse then. It's just, that was just how I grew up, you know, and I, I responded well to it. It's not that I wanted to be spoken that way. You know what I mean? Like I just felt that I learned better at that time in those conditions Well, when it's all you know, it doesn't seem out of the ordinary. That's what I'm trying to say is like, how the fuck do you explain to anyone now, 20 some odd years later, which is now many years ago, Mm -hmm. cooking then was so fucking backwards ass. Yeah. It's hard to describe it without sounding like talking about your, you know, being the quarterback for the high school football team. And we talk about this. There is no way we're talking in romanticized nostalgia about it. No. I, I just talking to you now, I'm just like, yeah, Fox is the last person I think would, that would like flourish in an intense environment like that. I agree. Like, <laughs> I, I don't like hectic. At this point, I like things very calm and controlled because there's, I don't know, there's no point to, to let things 
be to be crazy. It's I don't never know. that important. No, I think a lot of times I would look for things to create something to be. If there wasn't anything to be at that certain moment really crazy about, you would manufacture it. I would manufacture something that was wrong and needed fixing, and something that I would have to like drive a point home somehow. And I'm not rationalizing it. And you're talking to two individuals that I think have, in like hyperbole, gone to hell and back and been better for it because there's been a lot of reflection through it. But I use this as an example before, and I know you're the same age, so you know this, the the Don't Do Drugs campaign in the 80s when the dad walks into the kid's room and he's brings out a joint that he found in the bathroom. And then he goes to the kid, his son, like, what is this? Where did you learn how to do this? I learned it by watching you. That's one of the best commercials ever. And again, like I know you probably joked about it with your friends too. It was funny, but I never thought it would be sad for me later. And that message was something that stuck with me because it was so funny to me and my friends in the 80s. I learned it from watching you, dad, okay? And the reality is, is we learned without really thinking from what we were watching and how to behave. And I can't rationalize that in terms of like why it was what it was, but like particularly when creating conflict, particularly when there were moments when I could have communicated things better, but I didn't know how. And I look back at it and I'm like, man, I wish I was better prepared. I yeah. wish I knew that there were other avenues. And I'm sure that there were, but I couldn't see them. And what I experienced when I went in the kitchen was not what I was used to. It wasn't what my house was like. It was definitely something brand new and definitely crazy. So why'd you respond well to it? Like I, I find it to be so, and I've seen you work, man. You get fucking super serious. <laughs> Right, like it's so weird to me to see that transformation because I can't see it in myself, even though I know I do. But when you put on Chef Whites, you sort of become a different person. Everyone assumes I'm always mad, and it's just (laughs) I'm—I just don't smile. I don't even know if I know how to smile. In a kitchen, if my face even does that, usually I'm just a furrowed brow, and it is definitely a different focus. I mean, I'm not like that outside of no. You know, there was no talking. There was no music. The only talking was answering, you know, a fire, yes, chef, or coordinating, you know, three minutes. That was the only talking that was allowed. But what happened after service ended and you're done cleaning and wiping everything down? That was all cool. Yeah, everything's good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the funny thing is, is you bottle up all of this emotion. And then when service is over, you got to let it loose somehow. And I wonder after all those years of like cooking and being in that incredibly intense environment, uh, what happens, you know, what happens to your psyche after a while? You know what? The weird thing is I would get off work, but maybe it's just, I was pretty boring. I would just go home and watch TV. Like I, I didn't really go to bars. I didn't get into that cycle. I would really just go home and watch movies or, or uh, read cookbooks for a long time. I, I think I handled things really well <laughs> until I didn't. Until you didn't. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Skagen. Cultural identity plays a big part of Skagen's Danish-inspired watches and jewelry. Skagen is named after a Danish coastal town and is inspired by the people who live there. 
The Danish lifestyle focuses on what's meaningful, being part of a community, living purposefully, but also making time for good food, good music, and good company. No wonder Denmark is known as the happiest place on earth. I really believe that statement. As crazy as that sounds, I go there a lot. Skagen connects the dots between culture and design with watches and jewelry that reflect the less is more concept. Skagen offers men's and women's watches, jewelry, and even smart watches in a variety of styles. They create styles driven by their guiding principle, good design for better living. Skagen products look right at any time of day, anywhere in the world, now or 10 years from now. Because simplicity isn't just beautiful, it's versatile. Skagen stays true to their heritage, and that makes every design something special. They gave me a Skagen watch the other day. It's fantastic. I love my Skagen watch. I get a lot of compliments on it. Visit skagen.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. That's skagen.com, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Today's Day Chang Show is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. And Hotel Tonight has partnered with these awesome hotels to help them sell these unsold rooms, which means you get incredible deals. Seriously, if you love scoring amazing hotel deals, you gotta try Hotel Tonight. Forget scrolling through never-ending lists. Hotel Tonight shows you a select list of incredible deals at cool hotels they think you'll love. And they'll even give short profiles of each hotel, complete with all the info you need and pictures of what the rooms really look like. Plus, even though their name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can even book in advance. Perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, three-day weekends, staycations, road trips, business trips, booking a place with a pool, and more. Me and my wife, we use Hotel Tonight for our Thanksgiving trip to visit our parents in Northern Virginia. So to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, go to hoteltonight.com or download the app now. And now, back to the show. You leave Atlanta? Left Atlanta. Did you have a job lined up? I did. When you were done Atlanta, you're like, I'm badass. I'm fucking king of the mountaintop. I know how to do everything. Or you're like, no, I know nothing. No, I, I didn't think I knew nothing. I just, I thought I was ready for a different thing. And I really saw the San Francisco scene and the ingredients. And I just decided that's where I want to go. So no I, New I, York, you just bypassed us all together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> New York was too fast for me. Like, I don't like to be rushed. Wait, so you just moved to San Fran without knowing anyone? Right. I, I did have a job lined up. I didn't stick with that job for very long. I ended up after a couple of restaurants in San Francisco, the chef at a Kimpton hotel in Aspen, Colorado. And it was just miserable. Like I you was, never talk about this shit. I had no idea. I was 25 and I, I guess I thought, oh yeah, I'm, I'm an executive chef of a hotel. I'm 25. How many people know that you were the executive chef of a hotel in Aspen? I don't know. But <laughs> when, when I, I had already said that I was leaving, but my attitude went downhill and they ended up just saying, okay, you can go now. But they had like a task force chef come in to replace me, who was at uh, the hotel. At the hotel, and, and uh, it was Chris Cosentino. Cosentino, yeah. Wow, was this post him being in Washington D.C.? Yeah, must have been. Yeah, I don't know. It was. He was at Red Sage for a while. I was. It was two thousand and two, two thousand three. Hmm. So after Aspen, back to San Fran. Uh, yeah, I went back to the Bay Area and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. You know, it wasn't feeling great. But Manresa had just had a, a review in San Francisco Magazine. So I uh, 
I was like, wow, that place looks pretty cool. You knew nothing about Kinch before that? Uh, I did, actually. I, I had sent my resume to a lot of places when I was still in Atlanta, and I'd sent it to uh, Sent Sovi, but I never got a response. This is back when you would mail a resume in, in a covered letter. Good old days. Mm-hmm. And I staged a couple times. There was a time that... Uh, this is pre-Bonet or post-Bonet? Range. He opened with the Bonet. Okay. Mm-hmm. But this was early on. This was within probably five months of it opening. But uh, I, you know, I staged there and just it was so much different than any kitchen that I had been. What was so different about it? It felt like things were more choreographed. It was quiet. It felt controlled. The food was beautiful. The equipment was amazing. It was clean. It was just... It seemed like the perfect place. There was sunlight. There was sunlight, and there were the cooks were really good. And who were some of those cooks? James Cihabut, Joseph Centeno. Joseph Centeno was the chef de cuisine at that time. And he is probably instrumental pioneer in the downtown culinary movement? Yeah, I think his food is the epitome of, of Los Angeles, and he has five places all centered around... Uh, in a t-shirt making business. He made business. this. Yeah. He made this sweatshirt. And he's just a great guy. And I loved working with him. And James? And James, who... He was always on one side of the bonnet, and I was always... We were never on the same side of the kitchen. So it was kind of like he held down one side, and I held down the other. We were eventually co-sous chefs. Working with him, like, he was that guy that, you know, I was like, Everything seemed so easy. He was like a ninja. Like he could get so much done and didn't look like he was. And you guys became like brothers. Yes. Yeah. For some, and to James this day. is now the chef owner of Comey. And his mom had a restaurant in the Oakland area. Yeah. Hawker Fair went into that. He's got Hawking Bird. And he has another Hawker Fair in San Francisco. And Comey has two Michelin stars. Now. Comey has two Michelin stars. Right? It's yeah. a terrific restaurant. It's amazing. The only Michelin star in Oakland history. Wow. Didn't realize that. Yeah. And, uh, what I've always admired about the people that came through David Kinch's kitchen at Manresa was no one's a fucking jerk. I'm sure there probably were. There were some when I started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, was it adjustment period? We were like, shit, this kitchen's different. I got to figure this out. And did you feel like you were always like struggling to catch up? I always felt like that all the time. Whatever restaurant I was working, I always felt like it was a struggle. But I think it was just, I wanted things to feel as easy for me as it looked like it was for others, even though people would say like, you always seemed so calm. So everyone else always thought I was not struggling. Do you so. have like some distortion thing? Cause I have, a, sure. I have this problem. Like I don't think I'm good at anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I don't think I'm good. <laughs> but at when anything. I see you work, I'm like, dude, you're going to fucking savant. You're amazing at this. I, I, I don't, uh, you don't believe I, that. I don't see it. I don't see it. All right. But. So one neurotic weirdo to another, sure. we can, <laughs> we can understand that. Yeah. Okay, so like, what year is Manresa? 2003. When did you become Sue? Probably 2005. And then CDC is when? CDC was, I think, 2006. And you were there at CDC for what, a couple years? Yeah, I left summer 2007. And what did Kinch see in you that he didn't see in all the other towns of people? I don't know, because I, I always thought James's food was that he liked his food more. I was a guy who could just, I could get things done. I, I could, you know, wipe out a huge prep list. I could take on a lot. And when you mean wipe out a huge prep list, for the lay person, what does that mean? When you walk into the day and... You have things that you have to do in time for when the guests arrive. And 
that list was written the night before. And I would go home and go over that list, map out how I was going to do things, what things I could do at the same time, and just make sure. I, I, I couldn't sleep until I knew that that day was planned out. Okay, so I'm just telling you as someone that follows this business, is in this business, that's not what most people do. I noticed that. <laughs> most people would just come in and write their prep list when they got there or... Yeah, I, I took Well, I can't tell you right then and there because this is the thing that I know about this business is it's funny, you I've never heard you say like you never thought you were good at cooking or all of these things when I think that's obviously not the case. But the one thing I know you can probably agree in is that the one thing that I, for me that I loved about this business is that hard work and effort is the great equalizer and that turns into being prepared as humanly possible. So my paranoia that everyone's better than me drove me to work so much harder than everyone else because it didn't come naturally to me. No, and working that hard, even in kitchens, is a rare thing or to that extent. But I think it was a lot more common than I think. Do you think you had to work harder because you didn't think you were that good? Sure, yeah. I felt like I definitely was trying to prove something, whether it was to imaginary people or to myself or people around me. But isn't that what a like a great chef winds up being anyway? Someone that plans is methodical because they understand every in and out. Like I always think the best chefs to me now are never the ones that are the most talented. It's rare that you find someone that's supremely talented with a crazy work ethic. To me, so many of the great chefs that I wind up and you've seen this, let me back up. How many awesome awesome cooks that were so fucking talented? Never, ever made it as a sous chef or a chef. Plenty. Plenty. And, so many, right? And then you see people who are crazy successful now, and you're like, back when I knew them, they, they couldn't do anything. Yeah. Like, I know that's what my peer group would I, say about me. I think, I think the same thing. Because yeah. when I see you cook, man, you have flow, man. You move in a way that is sensible, and you're thoughtful about it. I don't think that way of me, but like, when I see you make food and you're thinking about food and you're executing it, there is a sense of authority and a sense of presence that is completely different when you're not wearing chef whites. And I also believe because you've had to struggle to figure out every possible angle about how to make it more efficient to the point where you're like, well, if I start cooking this at 10 a.m., I can allow me to do this. And because my back's turned to here, I can do more prep and allow me to do this better, better, better. You start thinking and it's like how some of the best coaches in sports were the ones that could never actually like be the best player because they just had to think about it more. And I'm only just saying this now to you as a friend because we've never spoken in this direct way before. Mm -hmm. I think you just thought about it in a way that gave you a lot of originality because you thought more about it and you were more cerebral about it. And it very is clear to me in the food that I eat when you make it, right? Like you think about shit in a way that is very unique. And I think that all stems from you telling me like, I went home at night and I studied my prep list. <laughs> what the fuck? You, did you not? Was that really? I, was I, that I really know. I, I, that's not true. I went to bed in fear. Yeah. I went to bed in total fucking fear. And I didn't even have to take the prep list alone because I had basically memorized it in my head. And I was so fearful of how I was going to get enough time to make it all happen. Here's the thing, being methodical about the prep list and super focused during prep time and 
it was a race. I wanted to be ready at 5.30, knowing that if I was ready at 5.30 and I had everything I needed to do, it would be a great night. I wasn't going to go down. If I was prepared, I wouldn't go down. And the feeling at the end of the night when nothing bad happened is the best. Is the best. It's like, and I, I kind of use this. Why is that? What the fuck is wrong with us? The feeling of being on a plane. I don't like flying when there's bad turbulence and just wanting it to end. And then the feeling when it lands and the brakes kick in and you know the flight's done. That was the feeling at the end of every night when it was a good night. Just the feeling of the biggest relief and white knuckling. And, and you that. could literally feel the stress and anxiety just leave and fly away. And for a few hours, you didn't have any. Man, I I never thought about it that way before, but it's like giving me like sweats. I'm literally I'm sweating <laughs> because that's freaking me out. <laughs> oh yeah. It's freaking me out because it's true. Like and I think that there's something weird about this goddamn job that I can't put my fucking finger on. That is not healthy. It feels like you're on a mission to figure it out. It's not healthy, man. And it's like, that's not different for me now. It's just different now. But that feeling of when it's service is over, all the dupes are done, you're done. And no disaster happened. Nothing great happened. But, but even if something had happened, how bad in the grand scheme of things, would it have really been? Yeah. It wasn't going to be as bad as it was built up in my head. And you do that every service. I just wonder now for a lot of cooks that had to go through this, like, what the fuck does that do to you? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that is not fucking healthy, man. No. Not a chance. No. That is being on the edge all the time. But I, I handled it for a long time. And thought I could always handle it. And I was always trying to take on more. And it was never, okay, let me get things to a point where I can relax. It was always, okay, well, I can do more now. I can do more now. But that's, more isn't now. that to interrupt? Because I think what I would love, one of the goals of this podcast is to at least have someone that's not of this field, that is a completely different industry, be able to empathize or understand so many of the things we say to a normal person that's not in this industry is like, what are you guys talking about? Why don't you just quit? Why would you want to make your life more difficult every day? Why did that happen? Why were you so hell-bent on making your job more difficult every fucking day? It's a good question. Who taught us that? That's what I really want to know. Like, how the fuck did this happen? Because I'm the same way. I still am the same way. I don't know if, I don't know if I was taught that. I think, Something just clicked. Something just clicked on at know. some point. I think maybe there might be some, but there's definitely something in the industry that like encourages it. And think about this. If you're really good as a cook, what happens? You get promoted to a place where there's more fucking work. Right. And if you work hard, you get a good review. And then... You work harder. And you work harder. And then the more you achieve, the more work there is. Um, <laughs> there's I, no break. I definitely noticed that. And I... I had to make a conscious decision that, that there was such thing as enough. When did you come to that realization? Probably about five years ago. It was, it was kind of a slow process to where, you know, the idea of feeling guilty if you were going to go on and, you know, miss a few days for like to go on a trip or it, it just. Can you explain that? The guilt that's involved with enjoying oneself? I talk about this a lot with other chefs because I think at some point when you have a family or and or you have other restaurants, other projects that 
you always feel you're neglecting someone or somewhere and whether that's feeling like, you know, cooks are there because they want to learn from you, but you're not always there. There's guilt for that. There's guilt that I'm here, you know, at this podcast. uh, And someone has to work harder because you're not there. Someone has to work harder because I'm not there. And then you think, you know, well, is it better to, whether it's imaginary or not, disappoint my cooks or is it better to disappoint my wife and daughter? And, And at that point, it's not really a question. And that's a big driving force. The guilt is real. And it's something that it's hard for chefs to talk about. And we talk about it in private or over drinks. But quite frankly, Fox, I'm so tired of like not being able to talk about it. Yeah. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about because everyone, it seems, that I am friends with is so goddamn ashamed of being seen in public on a day off or... What are you doing? You're not in the kitchen. Wait, you're eating there on a Saturday night? Yeah. I think for a long time, everyone talked a lot of shit. Like if you saw a chef that wasn't in the kitchen a lot or was always on a trip. And now you see, you know, if I see chefs that are like, oh, looks like they're in France now. Like, good for them. Yeah. Like, right on. I, uh, I used to be a hater, biggest hater ever. Now I'm like, this is ridiculous. Our jobs are ridiculous. If someone can do it right, then God bless them. If, if all that hard work doesn't mean that you can go in, on trips to eat at places when that's the thing that you love to do, that's the food is the reason that you're good at what you do is because you have a passion for it. There shouldn't be guilt involved in that. I have a friend in New York who I won't name, and he, on his days off, would never leave the house because he was so afraid that someone would say, how come you're not in the kitchen? So he would just hold himself up, drink himself into a stupor, and order seamless. And I was like, man, what the fuck? This is bullshit. Yeah. Because the guilt is so real. We are put in a position that's constantly about providing for others. And it's hammered away at us and brainwashed. We're brainwashed that we have to sacrifice everything. Even though we didn't work in the same kitchens at all. I'm sure you learned pretty early on. Like if you have to fucking uh, ever do anything that's for you versus the team. Oh yeah. Like you're done. You know, my car broke down on the way to work. All right, well, what time are you going to be here? Um, there was no excuse to not be there. There was no really excuse to be human, uh, to be proud of. In fact, I haven't been to the doctor, the dentist in six years. How would I go? Because they're not open on weekends. You yeah. Know, things like that. And I'm not celebrating this at all. It's now at a point now where after a time of looking at this, talking to you and talking to people in this business, we all need to sort of come together a little bit more to be able to be, hey, this needs to change. And hopefully we're the last generation that had to go through this. And there's got to be a better way that's more balanced, just more enlightened, man. Yeah. And I know that idea of self-sacrifice <laughs> for what is ultimately what caused you a great amount of fucking distress for myself as well. And I think you were really one of the first people to talk about it, man. And I know you don't want to be like that person, but I, I admire you for doing that. It was incredibly brave. Let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. A quality night's sleep helps you recover from distractions faster, prevent burnout, make better decisions, improve your memory, and overall make fewer mistakes. It's not marketing, it's science. To design a better mattress to give you a quality night's sleep 
Lisa leveraged 30 plus years of experience and hundreds of hours of scientific testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's rest for every body. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That's more than 31,000 mattresses and counting. Lisa strives to leave the world better than they found it, and that doesn't stop with mattress donations. Together with the Arbor Day Foundation, Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell. Currently, I'm splitting time between LA and New York. Right now, a little bit more in New York because my wife's expecting and she wants to have the baby here, and we have to move to a larger place because I live in a one-bedroom, and that means new mattresses, and we are sleeping on the Lisa mattress. It is a game changer for me. Those that know me know that when I'm super grouchy, it's usually because I get a bad night's rest, and the Lisa mattress makes me sleep like a baby. So I highly encourage it. It's a wonderful night's sleep. Give yourself the gift of a better night's rest this holiday. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash Chang, and use promo code Chang at checkout. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G, promo code Chang. When you were at Manresa, how the hell did you hear about this thing at Ubuntu? What made you be like, yes, this is a good idea? I believe I heard about it through a a recruiter because I was definitely looking to do something else. I think I was ready to go try something else. I thought it was a weird concept at first. It definitely wasn't the obvious thing for me. But I met the gardener. I met Jeff Dawson, who I met him and I knew that with him growing things that I would at least learn a lot. And when I finally went to Ubuntu, I think I was one of the best meals I've ever had. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that just because you're in front of me. It's the first time I really was blown away. And I remember telling everyone at the table, like, who the fuck is thinking about food this way? What the fuck is going on? I remember being completely and utterly perplexed as to the originality of what was happening without going to the dishes because there's no need to. It was a seismic shift. And I remember when Rene Redzepi came in, he tells me, he's like, dude, he's cooking carrots, these ox hard carrots, like they're meat. Just that something as simple as that had not been done in the way that you were doing it. And it had massive, massive impact to a lot of different people. And I know that it's the last thing you want to talk about. And I think you need to at least understand for all that pain that you went through to make that shit happen, you helped change the culinary landscape, man. It's a fucking real fucking shit thing you did. I just, it's its hard to think that that's true. I know. I'm telling you, man, you really did. You figured out something that no one had done in America in a way that I had like expected like that. It was a fucking massive thing. And it was done in a way right before people started to really give a shit about food, at least in media. Right around this time, we got to hang out a little bit more and more. And I don't remember, but conversations happen, James Beard Awards, food and whatever. But we started to sort of relate. And I just remember us having some more and more conversations. And I also remember being like, fuck, I think you might have reached out because of like the stress you were under. I didn't have answers for you. And I don't think I gave really good advice. But the kind of food that you are making, and I know from my own experience, and tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm right, doesn't, this is just how I 
interpret it, and I apologize if I can't articulate it well. To make food like that, you have to sacrifice everything. It seems like it. Or I'm sure it's possible. I don't know, bro. But I do think that it takes a certain amount of obsession and definitely sacrifice and putting that as number one. You were like, no, I got to get up at like two in the morning. And it was like 11. I don't remember what. It was like, oh, I got to help pick this and this. I got I to gotta get the menu. And the grind of maintaining that excellence was fucking insane, man. And everything has its life and span. And I didn't even do it that long. You didn't even do it that long because there's no fucking way. You were working like a goddamn lunatic. I was. Can you, without going into it, like what was, what time were you waking up? I mean, it got to a point where I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep or I would catch a couple hours like sleeping in a booth and wake up when the, when someone got there in the morning, there was always something to do or I needed to have something to do. And at some point there were other things besides cooking that, you know, were pulling me away from cooking, whether that would be events or interviews or, or photo shoots, things like that. So when everyone left at night, that seemed like a good opportunity to actually cook something. Um, Seems funny now, but it wasn't funny back then. No. And I say this because I, you know, I love you so much. I really genuinely do. And it pained me to see the hardship that you were going through because the proverbial world was on your shoulders, at least the culinary world, because everybody started to come out. Word got out. Like you got to check this shit out, man. You got to get there. Everyone. It seemed to me, and you may never have heard the word Ubuntu, but at that time, that was the place to be. You were the center of the culinary universe, man. And everyone had to go. And I was like, fuck, how's he going to handle this? And the thing that people never fucking tell you, and a lot of it is because I feel like I've seen it happen. I've experienced it. When you get that kind of success, you have no idea how to prepare for it. No. You have to just figure it out. It also feels like you got to keep it going. And the only way to keep it going is to work more, work more, be more creative, be better. And it never, never stops. It's impossible to sustain. And when you were going through all that stuff, I think it was hard for me because I was like, man, I went through that shit. I don't know how the fuck I got through it. I don't think I really did, quite frankly. And when I saw that and when I talked to you, I think a lot of it was me projecting my shit onto you. And I'm like, man, like, I don't know how to do this. And when I was saying you, I was really talking about me, I think. And I felt bad and I didn't know how to help. You gave me an offer that for many years I wish I had taken. And that was, you told me just come to New York, sleep on your couch, work the line in one of your places and figure it out. And at the time I thought that was a horrible idea. Cause I only had a bed and a couch. I lived in a studio and I didn't have anything other than man, like this guy needs to escape. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, it may have been a good thing at the time. I'm totally happy where, all where, where things, where things yeah. ended up. I do great. I could, that's now. all I could offer, man. And it's not a cautionary tale, but I think about it and I get mad. I get mad as to how unprepared anyone was to help you. I get mad at the fucking gossip machine that surrounded your fucking name. When you left and the struggles that you're going through, I get mad when people refuse to look very clearly as to how the fuck it all shook out. It was very clear. Hey, 
the weight of the world's on his shoulders. How the hell is he supposed to deal with this? You're doing photo shoots. You're doing anything to keep asses in seats. You got the Michelin star. All the fucking top chefs in the world are coming to you in the middle of nowhere in Napa Valley. You're doing all the work. The one person at the time that you can relate with is your wife at the time was the pastry chef. And like, I just saw it, man. And I just wanted to help. I didn't know how, man. And I got mad because I remember, and I'm still fucking mad because I just remember clearly thinking, how the fuck is he supposed to do what he loves the most when everyone's taking him away from it? It's the one thing that had kept you sane. The one thing you knew over all these years from all your paranoia, from going home at night, from at the end of the day, knowing that you could just count on your Mises and Plus list, you could rely on your own intuition and effort to get through the next day, through work, through kitchen work, through your own endeavors. And the next thing you know, people are taking that away from you. And I was like, fuck, man, how does this happen? I think I'm able to look back on it now pretty objectively because it feels like either a different person or a different lifetime. I'm not angry about anything. I'm not bitter about anything. You know, I, I look back and try not to fall back in any bad habits that I you know, recognize from back then and try to also notice that with people I work with. You know, now I'm mentoring chefs and balancing, giving more and more responsibility to them without it being an overwhelming thing and, and expecting the same thing from them that I expected for myself back then. And you came out on the other side, like completely different person. Like how did you actually rehabilitate yourself? Like to me, that was like the most amazing testament of how fucking strong you are. You know, honestly, that part is what I'm in my career is what I'm most proud of is the fact that I was pretty much done. What do you mean by done? I didn't want to do it anymore. What were you thinking about doing? I don't know. I didn't have any answers. I, I don't think I'm really good at anything else. I mean, I've been doing this more than half my life. I don't have anything to fall back on. You know, I had one more chance. I felt in my mind, Rusty Canyon was one more chance. And I had to rediscover what I loved about cooking and to see if I still did love cooking. And something got sparked. And the amazing things have come from it without the pain and, and the struggle that it took before I was at Rusty Canyon. I feel like I've done things kind of my way, not trying to be unique, not trying to be uh, you know, a groundbreaking chef. I just wanted to cook good food and to be able to go home and spend time at home and to have weekends, to be able to not be at home worrying about what's going on at the restaurant. And I wanted to focus on the food, not on the, the trappings that come with it, just on the food. And that a lot of that is passing that along to the cooks, to chefs, finding your philosophy, finding what your style is and believing in that and being able to articulate that to all the people who are actually cooking your food every day and to try to create chefs try to train people to leave Rustic Canyon at some point, maybe, and then to be able to do something with integrity and to be able to run a kitchen, to be able to handle the things that go with it, whether it's scheduling and ordering and having to 
do a, an interview, how to talk to those, how to handle those things, because no one taught us that stuff. No one. No they one just, had us taught it. They just no. said, do the order. Make it fucking happen. Do it. Yeah, make it happen. But there is a way to do it. And, uh, you know, I'm not perfect, but I've been really lucky to find a place that gave me the chance to kind of figure things out and invent myself and find what, you know, what I love to do. When you got to Rustic Canyon, you were, as you said, like sort of building everything back together with help. I did have therapy. I did. um, How hard was it though? I think I remember getting really mad at you because you refused to do some things on therapy. And I don't remember, I remember feeling really bad that I was yelling at you because I I was trying to tell you to force you to do certain things that you're like, I don't want to do that, Dave. That was probably before I was at at Rusty Canyon where I I didn't think anything was wrong with me. Um, and you're like, why is this fucking loud ass motherfucker just yelling at me? Everyone around me sucks. Uh, I'm, I'm fine. No, I, I, I went to therapy. I actually stopped taking medication. That's that, when that, I got mad at you. That I took for a long time. It took a while to work that stuff out of my system and things felt foggy for a while. And eventually things got clear and felt more normal. Could remember that I had something in the oven and didn't burn it. And that's the thing. Having been on medication for... 15 years on it. I was off it for two. When you're off it, there's that sense of being normal again for that little bit. Yeah. It's like fool's gold a little bit too. And, and when you're on it, you're, you know, you wonder what's reality. How much of this is manufactured? Should I be more worried about this? <laughs> yeah. I apologize, man. I, I definitely remember not saying nice things over the phone. No, it was things I needed to hear. And, and honestly, I don't remember what those things were. I don't there, remember either. There but. are a lot, there's a huge time period where things I don't have a whole lot of memory of. There's people I meet and they're like, oh yeah, I met you back in, uh, if it was between this year and this year, there's a good chance I don't really remember it. <laughs> Man, you got help, you did it. And when you wound up making Rustic Canyon into the terrific restaurant it is today, I'll tell you the truth. I have never eaten at Rustic Canyon, and you know this. Mm-hmm. One reason why I don't think I could eat there was it was so hard for me. It was hard for me because it was like, this is shit that like I'm living through, you know? And I couldn't do it. And I still haven't been to Rustic Canyon as much as I want to. It was so hard to see you go through that shit, man. It was so fucking hard. Well, it wasn't your job to save me. No, it wasn't, but... I, for the life of me, haven't been able to do it simply because that period, what you were going through, I think there was going through all the shit in my life too. And I just could not quite fathom how the fuck you were doing it. And then when you came out on the other side, you were at a place where you're like, fuck everything. I'm going to do what's best for me. (laughs) And I think ultimately too, I think one reason why I haven't been to your restaurant is not because I know it's not going to be delicious and everyone I know thinks it's amazing and I've seen everything you've ever done. I've read everything. I've watched every fucking photo. I'm afraid of eating there and being having to have an epiphany of like, oh, I have to fucking throw everything away. When you said, I have to do the food that I want to do in a way that is only good for me and my balance, I was like, shit, like that's a level that I don't know if I can do quite yet. Yeah, I, I mean... It took a while to get there, and I think things had gotten so bad that where I was ending up seemed better and better than what it was, and 
you know, I remember my wife, she was upset about the neighbors behind us trimmed the hedges that were actually on our side too much. And she was like, I don't, I don't feel like you're angry enough about this. And I was like, I am happy that these are the things that, that I'm worried about now because there were times when I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a job. So for an issue like the hedges being cut weird in the back, that's cool. God damn. I remember very clearly, particularly when we were talking about it and then you were just like, this is what I want to do. And you're one of the few people I saw that had gone through it and that pressure that I could not exactly understand, but I could relate to. And the fact that you had come out and you understood something that I learned much later, the food that I was making that made me unhappy was food that was only for me, right? It was to feed my ego. Mm -hmm. And you learn that I want to make food that nourishes people. And I'm still trying to figure that out, man. You know, I know that, but that's still hard for me to execute. That's my battle. And I'm trying to find out what that balance is. That's the hardest thing. <laughs> like you have to kill your ego, man. Honestly, I would have to assume it would be more difficult for you. I mean, you're David Chang. You're royalty in this business as a chef in this time. I mean, been on the cover of Time, was that right? Time? But here's the thing. This is where we are the same. I don't believe it. And you have to understand that. I just don't believe any of this stuff. Just like you don't believe many things. Right, but that pressure has to be a little different than a little place in Santa Monica on 11th and Wilshire. No, I, I look at it very differently, man. You were you did something that very few people do, and I feel like you changed the whole game. And you don't get nearly enough credit for what you've done. And then, as you say, what is so amazing to see is the strengthened, more wise, more mature version of yourself. There's more balance. It doesn't mean that you don't have struggles. It doesn't mean that life is fucking awesome or anything, but I know it when I talk to you and you're like, best thing that ever happened to me is my wife and my kid. And that's my focus in my life. And that's something that gives me guidance, man. Like, and I swear to fucking God, like, your culinary career was something that was inspirational to me. And now it's like how you live your life, not even as a chef, is inspirational to me. Because, man, I hate to say it, but you went through some hard fucking shit and you didn't fucking break, man. And that to me is an amazing testament of who you are as a person. No bullshit. Thanks. For all the amazing shit that you did. And I don't know how many people know of all the things that happened. I don't even know all the crazy shit that happened. And I don't know for the life of me, I will make it in. And a lot of it is my own insecurities. And it has nothing to do with the food. It has everything to do with the wrapped up at that moment of where you were at, where I was at. And I don't know if I'm ready <laughs> well, for that moment, man. If you ever are, let me know. I, think, <laughs> I hope that you would taste happiness. That is what I'm going for it, to make other people happy. And I hope that's what, what you would take away from it. I, I think no doubt. I think no doubt. For a tidbit for someone else, like what I read and I thought was incredibly honest, and that's something that you will always be, to me at least, is brutally honest, something I admire, is you were open about when you opened up Tolua's, right? And you were like, I didn't do it right. Mm -hmm. What did you learn? What happened? Because um, second restaurants, just because you're good at doing one, doesn't mean the second one is going to be good. They're always the same. They're always so fucking hard. There's a lot I did wrong. I mean, there were also just things that are easier with hindsight to know of, of things that we should have done differently conceptually in the restaurant. But if anything, it was just what you worry about is just failing and, and embarrassing yourself. And that is 
to go back, that's the feeling of being on a plane with turbulence and opening a restaurant and hoping that it goes well and, you know, not necessarily feeling like you can control everything. And then the best thing is that I did fail and I didn't die. The restaurant's still open. We paid attention to what we needed to change. We have an amazing staff who does it on a daily basis. And uh, I lived to tell about it. And that kind of felt great to, the biggest thing to worry about is failing and to do it. And it wasn't as bad as you think it's going to be. And how did you learn all this shit, man? In the sense that one of the more innovative chefs, great at running a kitchen, overseeing all that stuff. Like now, are you less of a chef, less of the chef you were before? I mean, now you're a different chef and now you are a manager of people. Yes. Is that a weird transition? It is. It is. And it's something I still try to get used to. And, you know, there's still guilt about that, about if I'm at one restaurant, I'm not at the other restaurant. So what's next, man? Opening a restaurant called Birdie G's, hopefully next spring in Santa Monica. And uh, that is it. I don't have anything else planned. What kind of food? American. You always said you want to do like meat and threes. Is it going to be meat and three? It's not a meat and three. No meatloaf? You love meatloaf, you said. I didn't say no meatloaf. <laughs> yeah, I actually do have meatloaf on the menu. I got to start testing that. But yeah, American food that I just want to be delicious and timeless and a place where you want to be and you want to hang out. But I don't have, uh, I don't have any more cookbooks planned. I don't have any more restaurants planned. Uh, I really think that your cookbook is one of the best cookbooks to come out in many, many years. And I really... Don't say that lightly either, because if you study that, you're going to study your career's philosophy and how every recipe seems like it's just a simple recipe, but it's really important. I thought the forward was great, but <laughs> once you got past that, it was... No, 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 no. Don't read the fucking forward. The recipes to me are... are um, if you like recipes with sub-recipes that have sub-recipes in those, then it's the book for you. And it's the book for me because... I really encourage all of my cooks to read it, not just about vegetables, but about how to think about food. And one of the things that I've always admired about a lot of the things is your original thought process for cooking. It's definitely in that book. Rustic Canyon is what kind of food? Rustic Canyon is, it's a neighborhood restaurant that showcases the farmer's market. Santa Monica Farmer's Market is one of the best farmer's markets in the country. If you're curious what's growing in Southern California, I want you to be able to look at the menu uh, at Russell Canyon and know that this is what's best at the market right now. There are a lot of restaurants that say they use the farmer's market. You really utilize the farmer's market, I think, more than most. Yeah. I mean, I don't know any other way. <laughs> um, yeah. But you're not waking up three in the morning and picking your own peas anymore. No, no, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. I don't anymore. I'm up early, but that's because I have a, a two-year-old, but... I get eight, eight hours of sleep. That's important. And what were some of the changes at Tulu is like, what's the menu there when people go? It's a neighborhood restaurant, Mexican influences. It, it was a Tex-Mex place for 35 years in the previous incarnation. It's all organic ingredients. Same thing, same ingredients we use at Rusty Canyon. Nice, clean, creative. We're nixtamalizing, cooking, grinding our own masa now, which has taken the tortillas to another level. I didn't realize tortillas would be the toughest thing I'd ever have to figure out in the restaurant. And luckily, I didn't have to figure it out. My chefs figured it out. But What makes a tortilla so impossible? Because it is. 
impossible to make delicious on a consistent basis. Let me say that. Yeah, to be able to do hundreds and hundreds of them on a nightly basis and to have the tortillas be cooked nicely and not ahead of time. If they sit, they're dead. If the masa is not hydrated enough, the tortilla is going to be dry. If it's too hydrated, it can be impossible to press. And every corn kernel is different. So it's definitely been, you don't think about the humble tortilla, but it's a big deal. And I'll end it on this and visit all of his restaurants in Santa Monica, even though he lives on the east side. I hope that he opens up something on the east side one day. There are a lot of cooks out there that need help, cooks or chefs, and they're going through shit. And if your struggles can help out someone, I know that you'd be happy to share that. But what do you do when someone says, ah, oh, no one can help me? Like, ah, I, this, it doesn't matter. I'll just figure it out. Because I hear that shit all the time. Yeah. I mean, I guess if depending on how what your relationship is, you, you want to do everything you can. And sometimes people have to figure it out themselves, especially when things are bad. It's really hard to see the options. It's really hard to see that it doesn't have to be this way. And, yeah. And, and I think what I'm trying to figure out just in talking to you and tying it up in this pod is I think it's okay to ask for help. You have to ask for help. <laughs> There's still remnants of this machismo stupidity in kitchens, no matter how enlightened they become. There are still vestiges of, I don't got time to bleed mentality. And I see it. I know it even in my own company, it's happening where people feel that they can't let someone down or they can't be seen as weak. You're one of the strongest motherfuckers I know. And one thing that I don't think you ever really had a hard time with is like, being open about asking for help, actually. I don't think that was like part of the, I think listening, listening to advice might have been hard, but it, you weren't hard. It wasn't hard for you to ask for help. Yeah. Again, it's hard to remember. I think I, I asked for a lot of help, but I, if it wasn't the answer I was looking for, <laughs> then, uh, it didn't matter. I don't think there was an answer that would have satisfied me at that time. And what happens if someone's like, I, I'm asking for help, but it's not what I want to hear? What are they supposed to do? You can, find a therapist talking to someone who that's their job is to listen and to maybe offer some insight. I think that is really important. Someone who doesn't have anything to lose or gain from you. That is important. I will end it on that. And I know that if you're listening to this, you're like, wow, there's a lot of not fun things to talk about uh, that you, <laughs> I was hoping to learn a lot of different things from Fox. I do think that it's wildly important that we continue at least People in this industry talk about the shit that is not fun to talk about. I think that's a responsibility that I think I have, and I know that Jeremy knows and has as well. Visit his restaurants regardless in Santa Monica. They're fantastic, and I will promise you I will get there soon enough. One of the great chefs out there, Jeremy Fox, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Have a brother. Thanks for listening, guys. Please give us five stars on iTunes or however you listen to your podcast. We'll get to you next week with another podcast. Thank you so much. Take it easy.